Welcome to episode 14 of the Clayton Castle podcast. My name is Clayton Castle, and I'm so pumped for this episode. It's another great episode on sports here in the Cincinnati area. Obviously, we're all coming off a big high over the weekend of the Cincinnati Bearcats, my Cincinnati Bearcats, knocking off the Notre Dame Fighting Irish 24-13 to in South Bend. Of course, UC fans traveled really well to the game. You can hear the Let's Go Bearcats chants on the television. I refuse to go to South Bend because I was telling people that if they lose, if UC loses, that is a long drive home. And so I was like, I'm just going to watch it on TV with some of my family. And that's exactly what I did. My dad and my brother came up to Middletown to watch the game with me. And we had a blast. Obviously, UC dominated from start to finish. And I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be prouder of the team. And I was thinking a little bit along these lines of how did I become a UC fan? Everyone makes fun of me because I did not go to UC. I actually went to Northern Kentucky University, home of the Norse, which, by the way, I'm a fan of the Norse as well. So, you know, if you come at me, know that I'm also a fan of my alma mater. It's not just UC. But UC, my UC roots go way back. They go back to the time of the late 90s, early 2000s. And I was actually very musically inclined growing up. So I played piano and I played violin. And we used to take, my brother and I used to take violin lessons at CCM. They had a kids program there. And we used to go into, oh gosh, I forgot the the the, the building. I think it's called Memorial Hall. And we would take these lessons. Well, when my brother would have his lessons... I would go out to Nippert Stadium and watch the football team practice because I was also interested in sports. I loved football, but I really didn't have a team then. But, you know, this was a weekly thing where I would go out and watch the football team practice. And if they weren't practicing, then my dad, who was working at UC at the time and is actually still working at UC, he would bring a football and we would actually play on the field at Nippert Stadium, which was an experience of a lifetime. I finally got into UC football in the early 2000s when Gino Gadulli was the quarterback. So my dad went to Highlands High School and has been a Highlands High School fan ever since. Obviously, he went there, but when I mean he's a fan, he still goes to the games to this day, and he's 16 years old. And and so when Gino Gadulli went there, that was a big thing for my dad because you know, he was going to UC, he was staying home, so my dad could go watch Gino Gadulli play here at home. Because again, then a lot of Highlands players went to Kentucky to play for the Wildcats. You think of Jared Lorenzen, he's the biggest name that went to go play for UK, and obviously he blew up at UK, holds many of the passing records there still. Well, Gino, who was Jared Lorenzen's backup, ended up going to UC having a stellar career there, still holds many of the passing records there, some that Des Ritter will beat this year, some that he won't beat this year, but that's really where my interest in UC football came, was going to those games in the early 2000s. You know, this was just after the era or during the era of when you had to buy football tickets in order to buy basketball tickets. Obviously, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, even the early 90s, UC was a basketball school. You had Bob Huggins there going to Final Fours, going to Sweet 16s, and it was a basketball school. You had to buy football tickets to go to the basketball games. And 
stands there were barely full, 3,000, 5,000, occasionally 10,000. I remember there was a game in 2005, I believe, 2006, when Mark D'Antonio was there when they played the fifth-ranked or the seventh-ranked Rutgers Scarlet Knights, and they didn't even sell out the place. There was only 27,000 fans there, and at the time, that stadium held 35,000. Anyway, I'm getting way off track. So on top of that, of going out there to Nipper Stadium and playing on the field, I also went to Bob Huggins basketball camp for years on end. So what I'm saying is my fandom extends from childhood. A lot of people don't know this, but my parents divorced in that time too. So sports really helped me get through that time in my life. And sports really helped me kind of take my mind off of what was going on in my life or outside of school and outside of church and outside of, you know, my um, music lessons and baseball lessons. And so, you know, UC sports has always gotten me there through the toughest times in my life. And when they won on Saturday against Notre Dame, I think back to those moments of, you know, going seven and five in the Conference USA, you know, they weren't in the national discussion at all. They were not going to BCS Bowls back then. They were not in the conversation for national championships, obviously, until Brian Kelly got there. And so after what happened on Saturday, I cried. I'm not going to lie. I'm not ashamed. I cried because that was my Super Bowl. Not only because we beat Brian Kelly, but because we beat a program like Notre Dame, you know, you think of the top five programs. I think a lot of them may be interchangeable, but you think of the Alabamas, the Clemsons, the Ohio States, and the Notre Dames. And we beat one of those top five programs. And it was just quite something to watch on Saturday. And But now they have to take care of business for the rest of the season. They have to not only win out, but they have to win in style. They have to cover their spreads this Friday, tomorrow, or today, I should say. They are favored by 29 points against Temple. They need to cover that. They need to win by 29 or more. And I think they will. I think they will win in style, and they will earn that berth into the college football playoff as the first group of five team to do it. And then I don't think this will be the last time they earn a trip to the playoff. Probably as a group of five member, yes, but especially with them going to the Big 12, this will not be the last we see of the Bearcats in the college f- football playoff. So I just wanted to open with that. I am so excited for this episode. We're going to talk a little bit more sports with my guest. He is the publisher of the Musketeer Report. He is also the voice of the Norse, the color analyst for the NKU Norse men's basketball team on the radio. I am so excited to be talking to Rick Broering. That's coming up next. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I am so excited about this next guest. He is a friend of mine from my days at Local 12. He is the editor and publisher 
at Musketeer Report. You can also hear him as the voice of the Norse on the uh, the radio side of the NKU Norse men's basketball team as the color analyst. And you can also hear him on the Skinny Podcast at Local 12. I'm so excited to be joined by Mr. Rick Broering. Rick, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Clayton. Thanks for having me on the podcast. That, you know, thank you so much. I said this before, you are a great sports mind in this town. I just want to get you on, get some of your thoughts on the Cincinnati sports going on. Obviously, the Reds just finished up. The Bengals are going on three and one. Obviously, the Bearcats are the talk of the town right now. And then, obviously, I want to talk a little college basketball with you. That's, I know that's one of your strongest wheelhouses, talking about Xavier and UC and obviously the Norse. So let's get it. Let's get started. Um, the Reds, they finished with 83 wins. They completely collapsed in September. <laughs> they, I think that's fair to say. They were in the driver's seat for that second wild card spot, but just could not finish the job in September. When you look at what the season expectations were going into the season and how they ended up, was this season a success? That's a tough question for me because it's funny when you asked me what my expectations were before the season, or if you would have, I would have said, you know, I think the over under in Vegas was 82 and a half wins and, or maybe it was 81 and a half, I believe. And I said, I probably go under that. Like, I think they'll have a losing record. And lo and behold, they, they got the over. So like, from my perspective before the season, they actually overachieved, I guess you would say. But then once we got into the season and you saw how things were unfolding and you saw the way like Jonathan India worked out at second base, for instance, and you saw the way Wade Miley pitched this year and, and some of the things that came together for this team and some of the winning streaks that they were able to put together, it really felt like a disappointment by the end of the year because you were looking at a team that had handicapped itself by depleting its bullpen and trying to save payroll in the offseason before and um, a team that had a couple of guys just not perform up to the standards that you would expect uh, specifically thinking about a Eugenio Suarez at third base uh, thinking about Luis Castillo the way he started off the season especially and then Sonny Gray had his struggles throughout the year too and it's like man if any of those things go right for this team yeah, you have to think they would have had a better chance, but also, I mean, kudos to the Cardinals because they put on a, a run there at the end of the season, unlike we've, we've really seen very often. So uh, a lot of factors going into that. It's a long winded answer, but I guess it, it's my way of saying my convoluted way of saying it's, that's, that's tough to tough to answer right now. You know, you talked a little bit about their past off season, let, you know, cutting payroll, letting go of Archie Bradley, they trade Rysel Iglesias. You think about all these pieces that let go and that bullpen was the talk of disappointment in the in the beginning of the season. They kind of started to find their groove a little bit at the end of the season. I kind of played the what if game. What if they had not just kept the parts that they had? They didn't even need to really go out and add anything. I mean, I think adding a bat here or there might have helped. But you think of what they did last offseason. I mean, they, they could have won 90 games if they just kept those two pitchers, those two relief pitchers, and we'd not had a Heath Hembry or a Brad Brock in the, in the bullpen this year. Yeah, it really felt that way. And that's part of why I say it's like, you know, looking at the team before the season, I didn't think they were going to be very good, but once some of these guys started playing and playing well, and you had Tyler Naquin playing punching above his weight and some guys really having good seasons, then it became really frustrating to look at the previous offseason because you're exactly right. If you just keep the team together in terms of your bullpen and some of the depth, 
you're at 90 wins potentially with this team and they're a legitimate threat, but that's not the way it played out. Uh, COVID obviously had a role in that. I think uh, an ownership and front office group that doesn't really have a clear plan of what they're doing, or at least didn't going into last year, it was, were big factors. So that's, that's kind of where things stand with the Reds right now. And the onus is on that group now, because while, yeah, you're going to probably lose Nick Castellanos and you're in a little bit of a, a retooling session here. You also got some young talent. You've got Jose Barrera. You've got Jonathan India. You've got Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo uh, waiting to come up at the, the AAA level. So there there is some reason for optimism, but they really have to do a good job of piecing this team around those guys and and also finding the money to do so, because I can't imagine they, they made a whole lot more money this year with the, the attendance being so down. You know, you touched on my next question already. You talk about that young core of players. Jonathan India is probably going to win rookie of the year. You Tyler Stevenson played out of his mind. Um, what, what really struck me about Tyler Stevenson was he was so clutch. I don't know how many pinch hit hits he had, pinch hit um, walk-offs he had. So you kind of have those young core of players, Jesse Winker, who would have thought that he would have had a starting all-star year at the beginning of the year. So you have this core to work around. In your eyes, what are some of the top off-season priorities f- for this team going forward? Well, you've got to fix the bullpen. That's that's obvious. And then the big thing right now is you're going to have a major hole in the middle of your lineup without Nick Castellanos. I mean, he really carried this team in a lot of ways this season. And Jesse Winker in the first half had his moments. He was really good, as you mentioned. Uh, but Nick Castellanos was kind of the heart and soul of this team at times and, and really gave them an edge, it seemed like. So I think you're replacing more than just a bat but you're replacing a really good bat in Nick Castellanos. So I don't know exactly how they solve that issue. It doesn't necessarily have to be a right fielder, I don't think, but they're going to need to add some pop in the middle of that order. So I want to move on to the Bengals. Three and one, no one really thought that was going to be possible. If you look at their schedule, looking back at it, you kind of figure, okay, maybe it is possible because the Vikings are okay. They're They're not the Vikings team from early in Mike Zimmer's tenure. The Steelers are not great. Ben Roethlisberger looks like he deserves to be, he needs to be in an old folks home. They should have won that Bears game. I mean, that, you know, you can't turn the ball over three straight passes. You can't throw three straight interceptions. If you just take out one of those interceptions, who knows what could have happened. The Jacksonville game, Joe Burrow found a way. I think Joe Burrow is the key to this team going forward because he's making plays that Andy Dalton did not make. He's making plays that Carson Palmer did not make. We are seeing a once in a generation quarterback for this franchise. If, you, if I had told you at the beginning of the year, they were going to be three and one after four games. What would you have thought? Well, Richard Skinner and I had gone through the schedule game by game and done predictions for every game before the season started. And I had them at two and two. So I, um, I guess it was the Vikings game that I had them losing originally that they ended up stealing and getting a win there. So yeah, I wouldn't have expected that. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I think, you know, this season could have gone a lot, a lot of different ways to start. It could have been one and three. It could have been two and two. It ended up being three and one. And I almost wonder how much of that was the fact that they were able to pull out that first win 
late against the Vikings and you had the the big touchdown pass to Jamar Chase right before the end of the half and some of that th- like I think there are a lot of good vibes coming out of that Vikings game that helped give this group some confidence and you wonder how much that played into the fact that they were able to pull out a win on Thursday night against Jacksonville when they were struggling and, and I think that mattered so yeah against these bad teams I think it could have gone a lot of different ways give credit to Zach Taylor and and most importantly Joe Burrow that it went the way it did and they're three and one right now very easily could have been four and oh the crux of that is, though, things get real more uh, things get a lot more difficult here over the next couple of weeks because you've got the Packers coming in. You've got the Ravens. You've got the Browns all within the next five games. So it's going to be a, a whole different story against some of those teams. Exactly. And I was looking at the second half of their schedule after their bye week. You still have the entire AFC West. You have the Chiefs, the Chargers and the Broncos and the Raiders. You have the Ravens and the Browns. This schedule gets so much tougher after, well, really now with the Packers game, obviously you still have the Lions as well. So there are still winnable games there, but are we worried about this team going forward and the competition level being upgraded in the next few weeks? How comfortable do you feel with this team going forward? Yeah, that's the question, right? How much of it is an actual turnaround and is this really a the NFL's darling this year, which we see all the time. I mean, teams go from bad to good in the NFL all the time. So it wouldn't be a huge shock if they were able to make that turnaround. At the same time, the other side of it is uh, they played four pretty bad teams. You know, one average team, I would say, in the Vikings and three bad ones. So how much of it is just them beating up on bad competition and beating teams that are a combined two and 10 right now? I, I think that has a lot to do with it. But Joe Burrow gives you a chance in any game, I think. And this defense is legitimately improved. Logan Wilson has been great. They've also still been nicked up. I mean, if they get their full secondary back and Jesse Bates healthy too, I think the defense still has some upside left, which they're already exceeding my expectations for for the season after the first four weeks. So I'm anxious to see what happens against the better competition. Even if they lose, I don't think that's a problem. That's what we expected from this team. We didn't expect them to go from one of the worst franchises in the NFL to, okay, now they're a playoff team. We thought, okay, look better with Joe Burrow running the team, make sure he's developing the right way. And then maybe that window will open up in 2022 and 2023 for this team to really start competing um, on the the back half of Joe Burrow's rookie contract. So we'll see how that plays out, but I feel good overall. I mean, I don't know how as a Bengals fan or anybody in this city that's seen our professional sports teams couldn't feel good about a three, one start, regardless of how you got there. Oh no, I'm excited. I am pumped. You know, I'm just trying to live in the moment with this team because I know as a Cincinnati sports fan, things can turn real quick. Look at the Reds in September. I thought they were going to shoe in to make the playoffs, and they completely collapsed. When you look at this Bengals team, obviously Joe Burrow is back after a knee injury. They upgrade the defense. They upgrade their kicker. I think that's you know an underrated area that they um, that they upgraded in the offseason. What has been the biggest surprise to you with this three and one Bengals team? For me, it's probably the defense. I Richard Skinner talked a lot about this offseason. He said, "I really think they're going to be a lot better," and I was like. I'm sure they look great in practice, man. <laughs> They're not playing against live action. You know, I mean, like I, I just, I watched them last year. They, they didn't upgrade enough, but to his point, and this is the point he made a lot is, you know, they spent a lot of money last year on guys that never played DJ reader up front. Who's been their highest rated player overall on the entire team, according to pro football focus, I believe, or first or second, he's way up there. Um, Trey Waynes, you know, they, 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 they added some big pieces last offseason. They spent a lot of money on that they never really got to use. So 
it's like adding a couple more big free agency to this class where you also added Trey Hendrickson and you drafted a few guys that are already making a difference. And then the big one is Logan Wilson in the middle of that defense at linebacker. You needed a playmaker at the linebacker spot that could come up against the run on third and short and actually fill a hole once in a while. You know, you see the good defenses in this league have that guy that come up and make a stop when you need it. They're there to fill a gap and they can make an open field tackle. The Bengals did not have anything close to resembling that the last three, four, five years. Really since uh, Vontez Perfect is the last guy they had that was kind of like that at the linebacker spot. And he's such a head case and he's so erratic that it wasn't even all that great having him in that role. So yeah, Logan Wilson really stepping up and becoming a true dude on the defensive side of the ball has been maybe the biggest pleasant surprise for me. You know, I think a lot of this, this team is going to depend on the coaching of Zach Taylor. This is kind of a show him year for him. He has to win. I've said at the beginning of the year, he has to win at least seven games to keep his job. And I think about the roster turnover in his two, three years, four years now. And I, you know, I can't help but think he actually has an eye for talent because if you think back to his days as the offensive coordinator at UC, he actually recruited Des Ritter to Cincinnati. And Des was not highly, too highly recruited out of um, Louisville St. X. And yet here he is three, what a third uh, highest odds to win the Heisman trophy now. So I look at Zach Taylor and he has an eye for talent. And I think he's slowly learning how to become a head coach. He looked like he had no clue what was happening his first year. I think last year, a lot of what happened to the team was affected by Joe Burrow's injury. They don't, I think they win more than four games if he does not go down. And I think you slowly see a maturation of his level of competency in the head coaching position. How do you evaluate Zach Taylor's job up to this point? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, it's all about this year. You have all your guys, you have Joe Burrow in place. And quite honestly, if this year goes, and let's be frank about it. He got off to a three and one start. He's good. Like he's, he's going to make it through this year. I don't think there's any doubt about that at this point. Um, But coming into the year, my big thing was if they start slow and you get off to a really bad start with the way this schedule is backloaded, you can't afford to waste more time in Joe Burrow's development. You got to hit the ground running next year because you've got to, you've got to get some good years out of him while he's still on that rookie deal. It looks like, you know, one thing you have to give him credit for is Joe Burrow's development. And maybe that's all Joe Burrow because he's just that good and that special. And he was going to be good regardless of who was coaching him. But he, they didn't screw him up. And we've right. seen that before with this franchise when you take a highly ranked quarterback. So, I mean, I, I, I'll give them that at least Joe Burrow's developing the way we expected. The offensive lineman they've drafted, Jonah Williams looks outstanding at left tackle. Jackson Carmen is already making strides at right guard, even though he's a big a bit of a project. They needed to sure up that line in front of Burrow. I think they're showing that they can do that at least to a certain extent. They maybe need one more piece in this offseason. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're right. The biggest thing now is Zach Taylor has been the play caller for this team and he still wants to remain in that role. I'm going to need to see you get this offense on track a little bit earlier in games. They've just been wasting first halves. They've been overly conservative and I understand they're probably trying to protect Joe Burrow, but it he's getting hit either way. It's mm-hmm. the NFL. He's in the game. If he's going to be your starting quarterback, you got to use him like a starting quarterback. I mean, he's at he's ranked 30th in the league in dropback percentage right now, meaning he's not throwing the ball nearly as often as all these other quarterbacks are by percentage. That's not something you should be doing with a guy as talented as Joe Burrow. That's something you do with, you know, 
former Bengals quarterbacks that we won't necessarily mention on this podcast. So um, I, I need to see him open it up a little bit and figure that out uh, offensively. But aside from that, right now, I think Zach Taylor has done a pretty good job this year in a year where he really needed to prove himself. When you look at the quarterbacks of the, the AFC North, you have Joe Burrow, you have Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, Ben Roethlisberger. Is Joe Burrow the best quarterback in the, in the division? He's the guy I'd want the most right now, for sure. I, I think you probably put Lamar Jackson in that role right now. He's done more. He's, I mean, the guy's won an MVP. You know, like he's, I know everyone wants to talk about Lamar Jackson not being able to throw, and I understand that, but he's done a lot in this league already. So I'll give him the edge right now. I don't know that I can still give Baker Mayfield the edge. Like I, right. he's so erratic. And even this year, like Joe Burrow's clearly been better than him this year. So I think I would probably uh, say Burrow's passed him up and Roethlisberger there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Like Roethlisberger has fallen off a cliff here the last two years. So at my fantasy football draft, I bet someone $50. I said that the Bengals would finish above the Steelers in the standings at the end of the year. Do you think that bet is safe for me? Yeah. Yeah, I think the Steelers are one of the worst teams in the NFL. They're awful. Yeah, they they look so incompetent against the, the Bengals two weeks ago, and they are, what, I think, one in three now. So they're definitely in the cellar of the division. And you see the top of the division. It's so top-heavy. You have three-and-one Bengals, three-and-one Ravens, three-and-one Browns. Who comes out on top at the end of the year, in your opinion? Oh, well, it would be the Ravens or the Browns, I would assume. I'm going to say it's the Browns, I think. Their defense just scares me up front. I think they've got a little bit more uh, explosive nature to them. But, the, I mean, the Ravens are tough, man. And they I, I, I don't love Lamar Jackson as my quarterback. But, again, he's won a lot of games. So, um, either, either one of those two, I, I think it's going to be really close all year. But I think it's safe to assume the Bengals can at least be in the playoff hunt because I believe there are three wild card spots now, um, or two or three. I think they I believe they expanded to three this year. Am I correct? Um, I'm, or maybe I, I maybe I dread, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so even if it's two or three, they should still at least be in the hunt come November or December. I, I don't know that to be true. No, I mean, I, I, I expect this team to win about seven games. So no, I don't think that'll be enough on a 17 game schedule yeah. to, uh, to end up in the playoff hunt, but you know, I mean, they're three and one right now. So anything's possible. Well, and I think, uh, yes, I would agree to that to an extent. I think a lot of it depends on, you have to win some of these big games. You have to win either against the, first of all, you have to win all the games you're expected to win. That includes the Steelers game, the net, the other Steelers game here at home and the Detroit lions. I think those are the big ones, possibly the Raiders. So you have to win the games you have, that you're expected to win, but you also have to beat teams like the chiefs. You have to beat teams like the Packers. You have to at least beat the Ravens and the Browns once in order to have a shot. Is that a fair assessment of what they have to do in order to make the playoffs? Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly right. You got to win against the good teams too, right? I mean, there's too many good teams left on your schedule for you to just beat up on the bad ones and have a chance. And basically that's what I have them do. I have them beating the bad teams on their schedule and winning seven games going seven and 10. Uh, if they find a way to steal three of those games against the good teams and make it 10 and seven, then yeah, we're talking. It, it's a different ball game, but you are right. I just confirmed there are three uh, wild card spots this year. Okay. So that's correct. 
Cool. Well, thank you. I've, and I feel smart for once. <laughs> but okay, so moving on, I know you're not a huge UC fan, like at all, but I'm sure you know what happened on Saturday with the win over Notre Dame. And you know enough about this program. First of all, I'm going to get the obvious question out of the way. Is that the biggest win in program history? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. You look at this team, they don't really have a weakness. I think going into the season, their biggest weakness would have been their offensive line. But that seems to not be an issue because Des Ritter is in the conversation for the Heisman. Going forward, what does this team have to do to earn respect and earn their way into the college football playoff? Well, they're going to have to really run up the score on some of these AAC teams. Like as much as in the NFL, it's just about winning and, you know, let it take care of itself in the college game. You need style points, especially if you're in UC's position right now. And that Indiana win we thought before the season was going to be a big deal. It really is meaningless at this point. Indiana stinks, uh-huh. unfortunately, and that that's hurting UC a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the good thing for them is Oregon just lost. So I think you can take the Pac-12 out of contention for a playoff spot. I don't think they have a chance to get in now because Oregon lost to Stanford, who's not good. And um, the ACC with Clemson not being good, I think you can count the ACC out. So there's two of the Power Five conferences that I, I'm pre- I feel pretty confident saying they really don't have a path to the playoff at this point. And, and you can feel pretty good about that. So it really leaves you with the Big 12, which Oklahoma is undefeated, and they've got a fairly favorable schedule. They've got a big game this weekend against Texas. They've got a game against Oklahoma State, who is ranked uh, their final week of the season. So you're hoping Oklahoma loses at least one of those games, and that that would really help you. And then there are you know some concerns out there with the Big Ten. There's four or five undefeated teams there. You've got Michigan. You've got Penn State. You've got Ohio State with one loss. If they run the table the rest of the way and then win the Big Ten championship, are they still a factor? Does the committee then start considering two Big Ten teams with the loss, like a Michigan and uh, Ohio State or a Penn State and Ohio State together? And then finally, what about BYU? BYU is also undefeated, and they really play a tougher schedule than UC. So could they be the group of five darling and somehow steals it from UC? I don't get that sense. I think, I mean, UC is obviously higher ranked. I think people are higher on UC, but they are going to fade from the public conscience over the next however many weeks because they're playing the AAC slate, and no one cares about those games. Like, that's the issue. And that's the issue for Des with the Heisman, too. Like, he's going to have to put up such huge numbers against AAC opponents because no one's going to be watching or really caring about those games unless maybe people are so wrapped up in the idea that UC has this chance at the college football playoff, that that gives them a little extra spotlight and notoriety. And maybe it helps give them a boost in that regard. But um, I would love to see UC in the college football playoff. I think they deserve it. I don't know that the committee feels the same way. And as a UC fan, that would scare me because there's just really no upside left on your schedule. There's no one left to beat. That's really going to raise your profile or give you a better resume for the playoff. It's just all landmines from here on out that you got to avoid. Oh, and I completely agree with that. The only thing holding back UC right now is their conference. I think we're having a completely different conversation if it's 2023 and they're in the big 12 conference, because the big 12 conference football slate is obviously a huge upgrade compared to the AAC conference because you're playing the likes of Oklahoma State, Iowa State, and not ECU and Tulane. So I think that the Bearcats are getting burned by factors that are completely out of their control. Plus, I don't think, I have no faith that the committee will ever let in a group of five team. I have no faith that it's going to happen until it actually does happen. So. I think that there are a lot of different 
I think there's a very slim shot that it could happen, but things have to fall exactly in place. I where I keep you my eye is the Big Ten because you have two teams. You have Iowa and Penn State currently. Obviously, they're going to play each other Saturday. You have Ohio State, who's coming up with only one loss. I think they're currently the seventh-ranked team in the country. Like they've made their way back. They're gonna. They have to beat up on each other pretty bad in order for UC to have a shot. I think each of those has to have at least one or two losses for UC to even have a shot. I look at Oklahoma's schedule. Like you said, they have a ranked Oklahoma State. They still have to play Texas. That's still a rivalry game, no matter how good or bad either team is. So I look at Oklahoma and I say, there's a shot that they're not going to go undefeated. Plus, they would have to play probably Texas in the Big 12 championship game. So, again, I think there's a shot but I have no faith in the committee putting in a group of five team until they actually do. Because you look at UCF in 2017, they had a great schedule. They go and beat Auburn in the, I think it was the Peach Bowl, and they just declared themselves national champions <laughs> because they, w- they weren't in the playoff. Do you think they'll ever put in a group of five team in the playoff? Yeah, I mean, this is the year to do it if they're going to do it, but I have the same reservations that you do. I don't know that they will. I, I think it was... Uh... Dan Wetzel, maybe on the Yahoo Sports podcast that made the the joke that he's like, I could just see the committee decide it's going to be a three-team ter- tournament this year and leave UC out that way. Like, I mean, I really feel more confident that they would do something we've never seen before like that than put a group of five team in. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I No one wants to... I, well, let me rephrase that. Anyone who's not in the SEC or the Big Ten wants to see UC get this shot, I think. Right. Um you know, but unfortunately that's not how the sport works and that's not who runs the sport. Back to your point though, about UC joining the big 12, the one pitfall you have, if UC is in the big 12 is it's going to be a whole lot more difficult to go undefeated and you still have to go undefeated. I mean, Oklahoma ain't getting in this year if they're not undefeated. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you'd be in that same boat of like, can you beat Oklahoma possibly on the road? Can you beat Texas possibly on the road? Like they'll, they'll be in the sec, but that would be the circumstance right now if you were in the, the big 12. So Well, and I think the big factor going forward is Luke Fickle. If he stays through this transition into the Big 12, I think UC can compete right when they enter the Big 12. If Luke Fickle is there, if he's not, then I'm not sure because we saw what happened after Brian Kelly left. We brought in Butch Jones. He was, I've been saying he was serviceable, but he, he wasn't on the levels Brian Kelly. We need a Luke Fickle to sustain the success through the Big 12. Then he can leave, all for all I care, because by then, if you sustain success into the Big 12, now you're talking about a good job that will attract good coaches. Is that a fair assessment of how much this means to the university and its future, not only keeping Luke Fickle, but keeping him through to the transition into the Big 12? Well, keeping Luke Fickle is huge just because he's a really good football coach and he seems to like Cincinnati and, you know, his kids uh, seem to like the area. He's got a big family. They've got a big house that they built, but all those things can, not your family, but they can move with you and all the things that you've built in the nice house can all be replaced with a ton of money when other schools offer you that. So um, the, the thing about moving to the big 12 is it gives UC big time money to spend. And that means they can pay a guy like Luke Fickle to stick around a little bit more. Can they pay what some of the top programs can pay? No, but they can be competitive and he seems to like it here. So I think there's, you know, there's a chance of keeping them. I would be a whole lot more worried than you seem to be about losing him in the future. I don't think you can just replace, look at how many teams are in the big 12 that have floundered because they don't have the right coach, even though they were once proud programs, Texas can't win in the big 12, even though they're Texas, you know? So, I mean, 
it's not just going to be easy for UC to walk into the Big 12, even without a couple of the, the stalwarts being there, if Luke Fickle isn't the coach. And, and I, I get what you're saying. Help him transition. That'd be great. But three, four, five, six years down the line after you're in the Big 12, you still better have the right coach because everyone else is going to be spending a lot of money to make sure they have the right coach. And it's just, it's super competitive. You know, it's like, it's the same way as like when UC was in the Big East for basketball. You can, you can have the right coach. You can be really good and you still finish sixth or seventh. You know, and then you go to the AAC and you can stink like last year and you can still up end up first in your conference. That's that's kind of what the difference is going to be from going to the AAC to the Big 12 for football. Well, I think as a UC fan, it's just a very exciting time because I'm just, you know, oh, Mo, sure. Mo Ager, he says this all the time. He says, I'm not concerned about whether they're going to make the playoff or not. I'm just trying to enjoy the the now. I'm just going to enjoy this team as they're playing now and then worry about all that stuff after the season. So that's the mindset I'm trying to take. But, you know, either way, I'm going out to the Fiesta Bowl because that's probably where they're going to end up if they don't make it. So I'll, I'll take um, late December in Arizona. So I want to transition a to now where you have a wealth of knowledge, and that's college basketball. You have Cincinnati. You have Xavier, NKU. Out of those three teams, who do you see taking the biggest jump this year? Because all of them, all three of them kind of struggled to an extent last year. None of them made the the NCAA tournament. Who out of those three are like are the most likely to make that jump back into the tournament? Um, well, I mean, I think Xavier's definitely got the best chance of making the tournament out of those three. And I think they're the team that'll make the biggest jump from last year because they you know, really struggled down the stretch. And I think the Xavier team has a lot of guys back. They've got uh, an experienced group. They've added some transfers. They've got a couple young guys in Colby Jones and Dwan Odom that are going to take a huge jump. It's just a really deep group, the gr deepest group and most complete team that Travis Steele has had. He has no excuses this year. He has to prove he can get to the, the tournament tournament four years in a row at Xavier isn't going to go over well with the fan base and the, the big donors. So it's a, it's a huge year for him. It's a huge year for the team. And, you know, they finished lower middle of the pack last year in the big East. I think it's quite possible. They finish anywhere between second and fourth this year in the big East. So that would be a bigger jump um, with UC. It's hard to know what to expect. I mean, yeah. the great thing is they're still in the AAC. So they're going, once they get into conference play, even if they struggle in non-conference, they're going to have a great, great opportunity to to win a lot of games and and be competitive there at the end of the season. I don't expect them to be a tournament team this year. Uh, I just I think it's going to be tough for them to score a little bit. I, I like David DeJulius a lot. I think a lot is going to be riding on his shoulders. And then they've got some athletes and rebounders and defenders that they've brought in that all played at high major schools. Uh, but none of those guys are really offensively skilled or talented players. So uh, Wes Miller wants to bring back the defense that you see. That's his calling card. He's done a lot with his point guards in the past. That's kind of been his MO. Uh, so I would look for David Julius to really be kind of running the show and doing a lot of the scoring for UC. And I guess hopefully you get enough from Jeremiah Davenport and maybe like a Mason Madsen as a shooter on, on the wing. And, and uh, that can provide you enough scoring to go along with the defense that once you get to, to AAC play, you'll, you'll be in good shape. But they're going to be a really interesting story to follow all year because I think Wes Miller is going to do a really good job and turn it around quickly. I just have no idea what to expect from this group because it's a lot of UNC Greensboro players. It's a lot of high major transfer role guys and then a couple of leftovers that, you know, had an up and down year last year. So 
Um, then finally with NKU, I think they're the team that I'm certainly most excited about watching. And I think they're going to be really good. They're going to take a step forward, but so is the entire horizon league conference. You know, the, the team that won it all last year, Cleveland state brings everybody back. Oakland brings everybody important back, right? State loses uh, their, their big man in the middle, but they bring most everybody else back and have some more talented guys coming in. Uh, they always recruit better than most of the conference. So you've got right there, three teams off the top that if you pick them ahead of NKU this year, I don't think that's unreasonable. And I'm really, really high on NKU and how they're going to improve. And I'm not even mentioning the fact that at Milwaukee, They've got a five-star freshman coming in, a potential one and done, a very likely one and done guy, a guy that people think could be a lottery pick. So, I mean, it is going to be a fascinating season in the Horizon League. At Detroit, you've got a guy that could be the the Horizon League's all-time leading scorer, potentially, and Antoine Davis. So there's just a ton of fun storylines in this conference. There's going to be five or six good teams, NKU being one of them. Um, and and I'm, I can't wait for the season to get started to watch those guys play. So I want to kind of go back to each one a little bit individually. So back to Xavier, what I don't understand, I don't know what to make of Travis Steele yet. Like you said, this will be, I think this is third or fourth year and he has not made the NCAA tournament. What, what can you talk a little bit about what Xavier fans are feeling right now with Travis Steele? Is there a little bit of impatience? Is there a little bit of, okay, you need to show us something now. Yeah, everyone feels. Obviously, when you miss the tournament three years in a row at a school like Xavier, I mean, everyone's going to be worked up about that. And I think right now you can make of Travis Steele whatever you want to make of him because he's done just well enough. They've been competitive and in the Big East. I mean, it's difficult. You know, no one, no other Xavier coach has started their career in the Big East. Chris Mack was in the A-10, transitioned, had Jordan Crawford to Holloway, like all these guys, really talented team in the A-10. And then a couple of years later, he went to the Big East. So it's a little bit different transition for him. He, he learned how to coach. Travis Steele is cutting his chops, first head coaching job against Big East competition. And he's done okay. They've been competitive. They've been middle of the pack. They've missed the tournament, missed the cut line three years in a row. And there's been reasoning. You could call them excuses. You could call them you know, uh, adversity that was difficult to overcome, whether it be the COVID stoppages last year, whether it be Paul Scruggs getting hurt the year before at the end of the year when they lost those games. There's been a lot of reasons for why they haven't made the tournament, but this year, most of those reasons are gone. You've got all your guys. You've got a loaded roster. You have to be able to prove you can get in. Um, but back to my point about, I think you can make whatever you want of Travis Steele. It's like, he's also recruited really well. They've they've got a lot of talent coming in. They got a really good young roster. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, I don't want to lose Travis Steele because I don't want to lose the young guys that we have on the roster and the talented freshmen that he's bringing in next year. At the same time, everybody would also tell you he's got to prove us something this year. He's got to make, a, make the tournament and hopefully make a run. So is making the tournament, is that the mark of success for this team this year and the mark of, mark of success for Travis Steele keeping his job? Uh, I personally don't think he would lose his job either way. Um, but yeah, I think if you make the NCAA tournament, there's no way he's he's losing his job. And I think people would feel much better. Now, it, it also depends a little bit on how you get there. I mean, if you go undefeated in the non-conference and you're rolling and all of a sudden you lose seven straight and late in Big East play again and, and falter down the stretch, then yeah, people might not be like, what the heck's going on with this guy? We keep losing it late in the Big East season and we can't win in the Big East. I think people would have concerns there if you backed your way in as like an 11 seed after starting really well. Um, but, you know, assuming they're somewhere between like a seven and 10 seed, a six and 10 seed, which is what I would, I would guess they'll be. 
I, I think he's fine. I think he's in, in okay shape and Xavier fans will feel good enough about the the progress and the direction of the program to look at the young talent and say, okay, let's, let's see what he's got. Let's keep this thing rolling. For someone like me who, you know, I watch Xavier, but I don't know too much about the rest of the big East. When you, you said Xavier can finish anywhere from like two to four um, this year in the big East, what are some of the top teams to look out for in the big East? I assume Villanova is obviously the cream of the crop of the big East uh, conference. Who are some of the other teams to look out for this year? Yeah, Villanova is is number one, clearly. Uh, UConn is probably the team that most people are going to have number two. I think that's probably who I would rank number two going into the season. I would then probably slot Xavier in at number three. Um, and then, But, I mean, here's the thing about the Big East. It's like pretty much everyone you can just say is going to be about 500. And then you go, okay, no, DePaul will be like five or six games under that usually because they're terrible. And then there's usually one other team that just for whatever reason is in a rebuilding year, rebuilding year or whatever, just doesn't have it that year. And they'll be a few games under 500. They'll be right over to Paul. Then almost everyone else is going to be 500. And then Villanova is going to be several games over 500. I mean, that's how it is every year. Like the right. two to seven is so bunched up in this conference. It's like, it's all a matter of like, do you steal a game on the road or not? Because most teams win their home games. And then it's, it's about stealing one or two on the road. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's just hard to really say. I think St. John's is going to be good, um, and then it's going to be a jumble after that for the most part. I want to save NKU for last just because, at, like you, I'm so excited for this NKU team. There's a team that I've always kind of just, you know, obviously I went to NKU. I'm a diehard UC fan, but I went to NKU, have kind of followed them. I was on the Northern staff when they transitioned to Division One. so I've kind of followed this team since the beginning. Um, but to, to hit on UC real quick, you know, when John Brandon got fired, there was a lot of talk as to kind of damage control with Wes Miller in terms of who is he going to bring back? Who will want to come back? Who is he going to get to transfer into the program? I think considering all the players who had announced that they were going to enter the transfer portal right after Brandon was fired or right after the season, actually, and then all the players who came back plus the transfers, I think he, Wes Miller, kind of evaluating the progress that he made as soon as he stepped into this role, I think he's done a pretty good job. Now, like you said, I don't know what to expect of this team, but I think considering where this program was in the days following the, uh, the um, American athletics conference tournament, he's done a pretty good job with kind of cleaning up the mess. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not really on him. That's not his job. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't have anything to do with the mess. The university did that. And he's, he's just got to worry about himself and he's done a good job of that. But like, I, I would have no concerns about Wes Miller if I was a UC fan. I would be pumped about Wes Miller and that hire. And to be transparent with you here, um, when you run a site like Musketeer Report, like I do, and you're, you know, that's kind of like if a coaching change happens, that's your biggest opportunity to get new subscribers and make money. So that's something you're always thinking about, something you're always ready for. And not that I expected Travis Steele to lose his job or anything like that, but you're always kind of thinking of a list of like, okay, if it were to happen soon, who's the first guys on that hot board that Xavier would be looking at, who are the hot names in coaching, who are the up and comers, who does the AD have contacts with stuff like that. And, you know, last year, as I'm making that list towards the end of the season, this is in March, the number one guy on my list was Wes Miller. And the thing I wrote next to his name was he wants the North Carolina job. So he'll say no, but you got to call him and ask. And lo and behold, Hubert Davis gets the North Carolina job this year. 
he doesn't get it. So now all of a sudden it's like, yeah, he, there's a chance he's going to look elsewhere. And UC was the the benefactor of all of that. So I am a big Wes Miller guy. I'm, I think he'll do a really good job, but this year is a transition year. I mean, there is a lot to, to handle from that roster perspective. And like, I don't care how good of a coach you are. And I don't care even necessarily, I mean, talent matters for sure. But even still, sometimes when you have enough talent, just getting all the pieces to fit right together, when you've got all these transfers from different places and and you're matching them up with some of your guys from last year can be a really difficult thing to do when you're talking about probably multiple starters are going to be new players on the team, right? That's always a difficult thing to, to get through. So um, if you were only having to replace like one key role with the transfer, then I'd be like, all right, yeah, they've got a really good chance to, to make some hay and be a tournament team this year given the fact that they've got so much to figure out with this group and it's so many new parts, learning a new system, learning a new coach. I just feel like they're going to have ups and downs early in the season. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll set the world on fire and they will be much better than expected. But I feel safe normally betting on a, a group of new faces and a new coach that all has to figure things out that they're going to take some time. You know, and like you said, I think the greatest blessing to you see is that they are in the American athletic conference. So the competition you know, it can always be tough depending on the year. Wichita State is not the Wichita State that it used to be. Um, SMU has had years where they're good. But UC is the one constant in the top two, Houston. three. Oh, well, yeah, in Houston. In Houston yeah. as well. Obviously, Houston made the Final Four last year. But when you think of the history of the American Athletic Conference, UC has always been in that one, two, three, four range. I I feel as though they have a shot to at least be three or four. And I think they have a good shot. But, you know, like you said, there's just so many moving parts to this team where I, I, I don't know what to expect. Now, thankfully, I said when when the transfer portal thing happened right after the tournament, I said the new coach has to at least keep Mason Madsen and Mike Saunders Jr. And Wes Miller did that. Those were the two key pieces who showed the most last year in terms of the freshman class, at least. And they also obviously got back to Julius and some of the other big parts. So I look at the American. You didn't want Terry Eason back, huh? I, I, I liked, I liked Eason. I really did, but I don't, I don't know. There was something about his play that I knew was not going to fit in with Wes Miller's style. And when Wes Miller came in, I was like, okay, Tari isn't, that's a huge loss. But I feel like the two biggest parts, the two who showed the most passion on the court and really played to their potential were Mike Saunders and, and Mason Madsen. So I'm glad he kept those. But I, when you look at the American Athletic Conference, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of weak, let's be honest. Outside of Houston, it, it's really anybody's conference. Yeah, I... Well, Memphis is going to be absolutely loaded. Memphis is the favorite this year for sure. Yeah. I mean, they've got Imani Bates, who's, you know, top three player in the country coming in. They've got uh, Jalen Duran, who's top 10, I believe. I mean, they are they are loaded, loaded. So um, now Memphis has to prove they can actually win with Penny Hardaway. They can score and do more than just play defense. But they are going to be the team to beat in this conference. Houston will be good. And then after that, you're right. I mean, it's I think anything third or below is is fair game for UC. So um, once they get into conference play, I wouldn't put anything past Wes Miller in this group. I think they can put it together and, and win some games. I just think early in the season is where you're going to, because they, they've got some big non-conference games that they have to get through. And, um, you know, like they have to go to the Centos Center this year for the Crosstown shootout. So like some of those non-conference games are going to be more difficult. And I don't think 
this group is likely to be ready. And again, could be wrong. It's hard to predict anything with this group because we really know very little about what they're going to look like. Right. It's hard to even really know for sure what the starting lineup is going to be. I mean, I've I've got a guess or two, but you know, it, it, that could still certainly be open to uh, interpretation at this point. So we'll, we'll see where, where they're at, but my guess is a slow start and then they'll, they'll get better as the season goes. All right. Transitioning to our beloved Norse, as I mentioned in your intro, you are a color analyst on the radio with Jim Kelch. Last year was an exciting year because you saw a lot of these freshmen breakout. You saw Marquise Warwick breakout. You saw a lot of different parts of the future come together. How do you, assess this Norse team and the parts that are coming back with, you know, you obviously have Sam Benson from Highlands coming in as well. So kind of mend, you know, melding these together, how do you assess this NKU roster this year? Yeah. Well, I mean, your, your point is the the big one right there that last year was so fun because even though they lost a little bit more early on in the season than we had been used to as NKU fans and they struggled against some of the lower tier teams, even you got to see the future on display and you saw all the flashes like Mark work was a co-freshman of the year and he took over games late all the time. I mean, not only was he able to score a bunch of points, but he was clutch. I mean, he made game winners. Uh-huh. He made game tying shots. Like he was a real star as a freshman right off the bat. So that was super fun to watch. And on top of that, we just had a ton of fun games to watch last year. I mean, so many of the games came down to the final few possessions that it was a really thrilling season to be calling games and, and watching all of them. So all of that experience equates to those freshmen were more like, you know, sophomores by the end of the year, as coaches always say, and this year they're just really ready to, to make an impact. And I think uh, Marquez work is obviously already a star. You've got him and Trayvon Faulkner back as your two go-to guys, but right. David Bam, one of the other freshmen, mm-hmm. he's six, eight, uh, a foreigner who went over and played for the Czech national team and did really, really well uh, with those guys. And, you know, they, they were raving about his progress and how much he's developed. And since he's been back, I've been at the first couple of weeks of practice and I was at some summer workouts since he's been back. He looks outstanding. I mean, his footwork, very reminiscent of Drew McDonald and the footwork Drew would use to score on guys in the post. David Bam's not an explosive guy. He's not a quick guy. He is a little bit taller and longer than Drew, um, but similar in that he can stretch the floor, shoot the three, and also score with a lot of skill and angles and using pivot moves. And and he's got all of that. He looks phenomenal. So I'm really high on him. And then Sam Vincent, who you mentioned also, uh, a freshman who I think can make an instant impact. I mean, this kid is 6'5", he's athletic, he's built, and he can shoot it from three. Uh, mm-hmm. He can play above the rim. I mean, like he's got it all as a freshman point guard. He's the type of prospect that, quite honestly, you don't see many of in the Horizon League. You kind of touched on a little bit earlier about this Horizon League. You know, as someone who is a UC fan, I've been to AAC tournaments. I've been to Big East tournaments. Um, The Horizon League tournament has some of the best basketball I've ever seen. And not just the best, but like some of the most exciting finishes. And I think that that goes to the level that says a lot about the level of competition and how there's not one dominant team like a Villanova or like a Memphis or a Houston, but any team could beat any team at any moment in this conference. Who are your, you mentioned Cleveland state. They're bringing back everybody. Where does NKU fit in this horizon league conference this year? 
I think, you know, they could be right there at the top. Like if you told me NKU was going to win this thing after what I've seen in the preseason, because not only all the guys that I mentioned, but one thing that they needed last year was more length, athleticism, and toughness, particularly around the rim when it came to rebounding and, and protecting the rim on defense. When Adrian Nelson came out of the game, their starting center, they really just had no depth at all inside. Well, they went and they took, Adrian Nelson was probably the best rebounder in the conference last year. They went and they got one of the other best rebounders in the conference, Chris Brandon from Detroit. They just took him from Detroit in the transfer portal. Now as their backup center, he's super athletic, a a tip dunk type of guy, great rebounder and a great defender. So that'll really help. They've increased their length and athleticism. So there are not only do they have good young talent, but they've got some really functional upgrades from this offseason that they've added to the team. So if you told me they were going to be the best team in the conference, I'd believe you. And I'd be like, okay, I can get behind that. If you told me they were going to finish fourth this year, maybe even fifth, I could listen to your argument for why three or four other teams are going to be right there with them, if not better. Now, I think NKU is a little deeper, and I think they have enough high-end talent with Warwick and and Faulkner and Bam. But those other teams, I mean, again, we're talking about Cleveland State won the whole thing last year. They've got everybody back. Yeah, Oakland has Jalen Moore and all their top guys back. They they can light it up. They gave NKU trouble clearly last year. Um, Wright State is always going to be a factor at the top of the league. And then again, Milwaukee with a five star plus Tijon Lucas and a lot of their guys back. I mean, they're going to be a threat. And then Detroit was much improved last year. They've still got Antoine Davis, who's the best scorer in the conference, one of the best shooters. I mean, I've just named five teams right there that are all going to be factors and all going to be pretty difficult outs in the Horizon League. I, one thing I love about the Horizon League is that you play the double round robin. So you get to play everyone at your home and you have to go to their place too. So you can't hide. There are no flute games. Like when NKU went to Wright State and lost by 30, guess what? They got to get them back at their place and beat them by 30 here. So yeah. it's uh, that's what I love about the Horizon League is that it's very equitable. I will say I was at that game at, in Wright State when they lost by 30. And that was that Me was too. not that was well, yeah, that was not that was not a fun game to be. I think my now wife and I, I think we left at like like the the middle of the, the second half. But um yeah, that was not fun. But like you said, you know, that can happen, but you can also come back and win two weeks later against that same team. So and I'm looking at their non-conference schedule this year. I mean, you have UNC Greensboro, who, you know, Big South, right? Big South? Yes. Um, you know, they're always tough. Obviously, that's where Wes Miller came from. And Eastern Michigan, they have the Blue Demon Classic. They play DePaul. They play uh, Eastern Kentucky. And the game I'm most excited for is going to Assembly Hall and playing the Hoosiers. I mean, this is a very interesting non-conference schedule. There are a lot of winnable games, but there are also some, obviously, your your buy games, your tough games that you're going to have to really come out and play. How do you assess this non-conference schedule for the Norse? Well, I think it's a really exciting one. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been, ever since NKU joined Division One, we've been searching for that high major win. We've been waiting to knock off one of the big dogs, and it hasn't quite happened yet. My, my first year on the calls two years ago, they went to Arkansas, and they came this close to two Dantes Walton threes for going down for having a chance at it. And they just couldn't get two wide open looks to go down, Uh, played a great game there. But this year they've got a game at DePaul against a bad big East team that has a brand new head coach that's coming from the NBA that probably hasn't spent a lot of time practicing against matchup zones and preparing his team for those over the last few years. And then they're at assembly hall 
against Indiana, a team with a brand new head coach coming from the NBA, probably hasn't spent a lot of time working on weird matchup zones over the last few years. I'm very excited about NKU's chance to finally pull the high major upset. And by the way, they were supposed to have UC with a brand new head coach at their own gym playing at NKU. Wes Miller was smart enough to bail on that game and say they couldn't figure out how to make it work. And he rescheduled it for the next few years. But man, I mean, they could have had three shots at high major opponents, all with first-year head coaches, and one of them in their gyms. That would have been unbelievable. I'm still really excited about the two shots that they have. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that series against UC. I'm super excited for that, although I'm always conflicted when that happens because I grew up a UC fan, but went to NKU. I remember when they played at UC, oh gosh, what was that, two or three years ago, when back when John Brand was still at, at NKU. Yeah. I went to the game. I, I was in was the 2018, ra- I believe. Twenty, Yes, 2018. I was in the rafters. I was wearing my UC quarter zip and my NKU hat. I looked so conflicted, but, um, and now I think it's safe to say, I think it's safe to announce that I have a job at NKU now. So I'm going to be even more conflicted. Um, But no, I look at this NKU team and I guess just the one word is excitement. This NKU team is always exciting, but I think the big key is they find these head coaches who know how to coach at the mid-major level. You've found John Brannon, who was an assistant coach at the high-end level at, at Alabama, came back, did a great job at NKU. You, fu- you found Darren Horn, who was not that successful at South Carolina, but knew how to, knows how to win at the mid-major level because he did at Western Kentucky. So you look at Darren Horn. What do you think of him as a coach in his third year as head coach of the Norse? Well, I mean – you're exactly right. Ken Botoff, our athletic director at NKU, has been unbelievable mm-hmm. at hiring head coaches. I mean, on the men's basketball side of things, you just have to like John Brannon was a tremendous hire that not a lot of people had pegged at the time. And um, he rose the program to new heights that we really could never have expected being they were still in that transitional period into division one. And then he goes and he hires another guy who was totally off the radar of almost anyone in the industry that you talk to. I mean, I I've been fortunate enough because of the Xavier side. I've been doing it long enough that I've, I've made some friends with a couple of different coaches and they've moved on to different places. So there's a little network of guys that, you know, when things like that are going on, you can text back and forth with when NKU set, like when they were getting ready to announce that I had, legitimate college basketball coaches who are well-connected texting me different names and no one had Darren Horn's name. Not anyone knew that that's who was about to get the job. And I mean, it was, it's ended up being a great hire. And the one thing about, you know, you mentioned his time at South Carolina. I would also say a lot of coaching is about the job that you get. South Carolina is a really difficult job. And when he took it over, they were in a really bad spot. And he was the one who ended up being left out in the cold because of all that, you know, eventually they, they fired him, but I don't think he was ever a bad coach. I don't think he didn't know what he was doing or, or didn't know how to coach basketball when he's at South Carolina. I think he was in a really bad position and I'm sure there are some mistakes made along the way, but I, for, for NKU to have a guy with his experience, his acumen and the maturity of having gone through an experience like South Carolina to where You've been to the top, you know how it works, but you've also been humbled a little bit and you realize like, hey, you want to do this thing the right way. You want to be great to the people around you. You want to build a culture. You want to build an atmosphere. You're not just looking to jump to the first big job that you might be able to get because there's a payday there. That's not where he's at in his career. 
And he's just like, just being around the team a little bit from a, a broadcaster's perspective and getting to watch them when they're going through uh, shoot around or, or workouts. Like I'll give you a perfect example. My first year uh, uh, traveling with the team, they went up and they lost at Detroit to start a, a road trip. They had Detroit and then Oakland Friday and Sunday lose at Detroit, who was terrible. One of the worst team, probably the worst team in the conference that year. And I'm thinking, Oh man, like I've been around coaches before you lose a game. We've, we're going to have to go to a shoot around tomorrow with our practice with these guys. And the, everyone's going to be so mad. We're all going to be silent and act like we're mad and all that before the practice or before the practice starts on Saturday, he calls me and Jim Kelch over. He says, Hey, come here. Flips open a laptop. He shows us some, some video. And he says, this is what we showed our players last night. And he's showing us some things on film. He goes, you know, they, they told us they weren't open or they told us we're not getting them the ball enough and, and they're open. Look at this. Does that look like he's open or does that look like he should be spacing more to the top of the key to da, da, da. You know, he's given us like, here's what we are going to tell them today in practice. Hopefully that can help you guys. And he was laid back. They had a great practice. He wasn't like screaming and ranting and raving. It was just like, I was like, man, that was really impressive. Cause that's a guy who knows he's, he's in a rebuilding process. He's got to work this. He doesn't want to lose the locker room. He's not just going to scream at these guys. If he thinks they're trying, he's going to teach them. And I, I, I've really been impressed by the way him and his young staff have, have handled the whole situation. I think they're really good. All right, last question. How have you liked being on the call for these NKU games? What is this like your, one of your dream jobs to be on the call as a color analyst for a division one men's basketball team? It is. I'll tell you the story I've told a lot of people, which is when I was 11, I, uh, you know, I came in to my dad and I was just basically like, I'm not going to play in the NBA. It's settled, you know, like, unfortunately, my dad's like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, there's not any short and fat white dudes in the NBA. Like, I, was, I was like very self-aware at the time. Like, I just, there's no way I'm going to be able to play in the NBA. I can clearly see this. And my dad was a big, you know, like, don't sell yourself short, keep playing, keep working hard type guy. But I, I was well aware, like, I've got to figure out another way to stay involved in sport. So, I mean, from 11 on, I would call basketball games in a talk boy tape recorder. I don't know if you remember home alone, that might be a little too old for you, but yeah. uh yeah, I would be calling into a little voice recorder basically and turn the sound off while I was watching on TV and stuff. So I always wanted to do play by play. So I got into college and like got into the workforce and started realizing I didn't want to go like sell a bunch of ads for single A minor league teams. And that's kind of how you become a play by play guy. Right. It became other stuff, writing and, and other things like that became my route to, to a career. But you know, to, to be called back like this and be a color analyst of all things, which you no, know, I never would have expected. It's uh, it is a dream come true. The fact that it's with NKU and allows me to be a total like Homer and fan. <laughs> and like, I'm in that role. Like it's awesome. It's, it's everything I could want in that role. Like, yeah. What I've loved to have been uh calling Monday night football or calling the big game, big college basketball games uh, on ESPN. Sure. That would have been a, a great path too. But like the fact that I'm able to do this in a, in a way where, I get to keep up with my favorite team. It's like all fun. Everything about it is fun from like just getting to be around the team at practice and talk to the coaching staff. To me, that would be enough, like not even calling the games, just getting that access to my favorite team. But then to like go call the games, which I really enjoy doing, learning from a guy like Jim Kelch who has been at the pinnacle called major league baseball is a total pro like all of that. Yeah, it is. It is really a dream come true. I have had nothing but a ton of fun since I started doing it. You know, what's so funny about that story is when I was at NKU and I was the sports editor of the Northerner, I did a feature on Jim Kelch and he told a very similar story that about how he got started. He would go to a minor league baseball game. I think it was in uh, Pure- Bradley Bray, Bradley Braves games. Bradley, that's what it was. Bradley, okay, Bradley Braves. Braves. Yep. Yeah. And he would take a tape recorder 
and just tape himself calling the game. And he said, um, you know, the sport, the SID were there would let him go in this little private room and just do this to, to just put something on tape. He said, and that's how he got started as well. So that is so funny that that's how you got started as well. Um, yeah. So- now, granted, I was a little kid dicking around and no one ever heard it. He was like <laughs> actually like making demo tapes when he was like in high school and stuff. But <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah. I was never as like organized and prepared and still am not as organized and prepared as Jim. But but yeah, I mean, he he has an incredible. Pa- I mean, you want to talk about a guy who really all he thinks about is like broadcast and mm-hmm. like the next broadcast and stuff like that. I mean. He is is a perfectionist that manner and he truly like eats sleeps breathes it for sure yeah no he is one of the greatest broadcasters i've had the pleasure of listening to both when he was at the reds and especially as the voice of the norse um so i you know i'm just so happy for you guys happy that you get to partner with him and learn from him i'm kind of jealous in that in that sense but uh, so rick thank you so much for joining me this was a blast um, I, I can't say enough about what I think of you. You're a great writer. You're a great broadcaster, a great sports mind in this town. You've learned from the best. You've learned from Jim Kelch. You've learned from Richard Skinner. I mean, just thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send you that Venmo right after for all the nice things you just said about me. I don't, I don't think anyone has that many compliments about me, but thank you, Clayton. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is a good podcast. I enjoyed doing it, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you so much, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Clayton Castle podcast. I really hope you enjoy that conversation with Rick Broering. He has such a great sports mind here in the Cincinnati area, and he knows a lot about all the sports in the area, not just the Xavier Musketeers, not just the NKU Norse, but you can literally talk to him about anything going on in the area, and he knows what he's talking about. So that's why I'm so happy and honored that he accepted my offer to come on the podcast and talk a little sports with me. So now, on the blog, I have a little story about my experience on Saturday with the UC win over Notre Dame. I talk a little bit about where the UC program has come since the the 90s when you, again, you had to buy football tickets in order to buy basketball tickets. And I just little, write a little essay about that. Not how I cried. Yes, that's in there as well. So you can find the the blog at claytoncastlepod.blogspot.com. As always, you can follow the podcast itself on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and SoundCloud. Just make sure you hit the follow, like, subscribe. Don't forget to tell your mama, your daddy, your aunt, your uncle, your cousins, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wives, your mistress, whoever. Let them know about this podcast and you know, really indulge in some of the stories that I have told on this podcast. I've really enjoyed telling them and I really hope you enjoy listening to them. And there is so much more coming down the line this season. I hope you'll continue to tune in. And I just want to thank you again so much for supporting me and tuning in every week to tell these stories. So we will see you again next week. <laughs>